You can turn with me to Hebrews chapter number 13. Hebrews 13. It's excited to gather together as a church today. I trust your hearts have been encouraged, uplifted as we have worshiped the Lord together. I know that uh, as Pastor Dave prayed, there's there are a lot of heavy circumstances, burdens, trials, difficulties that many are walking through right now. But what a what a balm and Gilead it is to come and worship with the people of of God. Um, I hope that no matter what you're going through, that your gaze has maybe turned off of those circumstances and trials, and you've remembered Jesus who he is, what he's done for you this morning. That's our hope and prayer as we come to the table and have a time of fellowship around communion. I pray that we would do just that. Remember Jesus, remember the gospel each and every week. That's why we gather, because there is hope that the tomb is empty. Jesus defeated death, and there is hope for us. And so um, I hope we together have done that as we've, we've gathered faithfully in obedience to the Word of God this morning. Hebrews chapter number 13, we're going to cover this morning verses 4 through 8. And to give you some insight in where we're headed, uh, by God's grace, we're going to cover verses 9 through 16 next week. And then two weeks out, we're going to cover verses 17 through 25 as we close out the, the preaching portion of this series through the book of of Hebrews, entitled the message, again, I get no points for creativity, I've entitled the message, A Better Love Part (laughs) 2, there we go, A Better Love Part 2, and uh, we paused uh, last week at the end of verse 3 as we were considering these different applications of love in the life of one who is truly walking and living in faith to the gospel, There should be some evidences, some fruit, some outworking of that faith externally to those around us. And uh, ultimately, that's going to show itself primarily through Christian love, through biblical love. And just as Jesus has made an opportunity for our relationship with God to be right and to be resolved, that conflict of sin has, has been resolved and we've been restored in relationship to God the Father through this great high priest, Jesus Christ, that restored relationship to God the Father will work itself out in the relationships that we have horizontally here in this earth. And so that's ultimately what Hebrews 13 is laying out for us in these different applications or context of what do these relationships look like? What is the impact of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in these relationships that are represented here in Hebrews chapter number 13? So last week, our big idea focused on this reality that true faith in the gospel will produce the fruit of grace-enabled obedience to God's word as evidence in our daily Christian living. And we looked at how love, again, is the primary means by which God reveals the gospel's work, this internal work of our heart and mind being changed and renewed. The old man 
being cast away and, and the old man uh, becoming new, or excuse me, all things becoming new and us putting on the new man in Christ's likeness. It's expressed through love. So verse one, the admonition, the challenge was what? To let brotherly love continue. That was the challenge. And we examine these three specific areas of love others within biblical community, the church, love others outside of biblical community. That was strangers, those just showing hospitality, God leveraging our, our, our resources, our time, our homes, uh, our living rooms, our dining rooms, that we would open up our homes and our lives to those in our community that God has placed in our sphere of influence and that we would love them. We would show them the love of Christ. And thirdly, we would love others that can't live in biblical community, those that are even imprisoned and are going through various hardships and trials, those that are struggling in their faith. We, we should love them well, just as we have been loved by Jesus Christ. So again, this morning, we're going to pick up in verse number four, and we're going to carry forward the same big idea since it's all extended here in this same paragraph and same text. We're going to consider three additional applications of this call to love. I'm going to give you the, the three applications right up front, and then we're just going to break them down one by one as we work through Verses four through eight this morning. The first is going to be biblical love should influence our relationship within marriage. Secondly, biblical love should inform our relationship with money. And thirdly, biblical love should instruct our relationship with the elders. Influence our relationship within marriage, inform our relationship with money, and instruct our relationship with elders, biblical love has a far-reaching effect in our lives. In fact, it should touch every area of our life. And so that's our hope and our prayers that we'll get that God-sized vision for just how important the gospels work in our life and how it is worked out through biblical community and how it changes and impacts relationships around us. So the first Application we're going to look at this morning again is biblical love should influence our relationship within marriage. We see that in verse number four. Would you go there with me of Hebrews chapter number 13, verse number four? Let marriage be held in honor among all and let, mar and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Before we dive into breaking down that particular verse, um, I'll note here that these first two points, point one and two, are really somewhat connected together in the text. And although they address two different applications of love, one within marriage and one within money, the author uses the syntax or the structure of these two points to highlight the timeless struggle that both physical pleasure and money have on all humanity. I don't want to bore you with a grammar lesson this morning, but we're going to have a little bit of a grammar lesson this morning. <laughs> so I hope, I hope you can hang with me as I just work through this, because I think it's, it's helpful in understanding how the author laid this out here in chapter 13, and ultimately how we can best understand its application within our lives, and specifically within the marriage relationship. So again, verse number four, we have this 
this implied verb of to be, with the subject being marriage. And then we have a very important, what we call predicate adjective of timos. And in the Greek, this carries the idea of great, a great price. It's precious, something to be held in high honor. It is esteemed and especially dear to each individual. And again, that subject is what? It is, it is marriage. So after stating this very important first clause, the author will go on to make an additional statement in an effort to double down on the importance and to heighten his reader's attention to these words. And so the second clause we see is in the same structure. We have this implied verb of to be with this subject or goal of it being undefiled. And what should be undefiled? It is the bed, the marriage bed. And then finally, our author gives the rationale or the reasoning behind these directives. In both cases, we see this introduced by the preposition for or gar in the Greek. This is the why behind this directive. This is a warning to those that are receiving this letter and that are reading these words. That marriage is to be held in, in high honor. And that the marriage bed is to remain undefiled. Why? Because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous people. The structure seems to lay out a common sense rationale that the author wants us to grasp a hold of. Hold marriage in the highest place of honor. Esteem it. Handle it with care. Guard it and protect it, men. Specifically, as the covenant bearers of the marriage before the Lord. Protect it. Fight for it. Esteem the covenant of marriage in this day, in this time of our generation where marriage is being redefined by our culture and our society. So we recalibrate our hearts and our minds today on the timeless and absolute truth of the word of God to help our thinking and our mind and our hearts of how we should relate to one another in the covenant of marriage. And men, we are to protect, fight for, and esteem it highly. That is our burden to bear. Certainly women, as wives, you had the responsibility to engage in marriage as well. We'll work through that here in a little bit. But men, you are the covenant bearers. And it is up to you to place a strong foundation of the gospel, of the word of God, of truth that your marriage is built upon. And so esteem it. Hold it highly. Husbands and wives then interact with other men and women of the opposite sex carefully. This is the warning. Husbands and wives that are married, we are to interact with other men and women of the opposite sex carefully. Be sure to keep your own marriage in its rightful place of honor so biblical love can influence and benefit our relationship with our own marriage and with our spouse, but husbands and wives. Hold the covenant of marriage to the highest place of honor in your mind and your heart so that it can also influence every relationship that you have with the opposite sex. 
within the church. Friends, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Men and women that we love in Christ Jesus through the gospel. These are brothers and sisters, young people. Engage as such. Why? Because you hold your marriage in high honor and God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous outside the church. How should we view those of the opposite sex? These are men and women created in the image of God. The Imago Dei, they are image bearers of God. We should love and care for them in Christ Jesus. Viewing them as image bearers, those who need Jesus, and we should engage with and relate to them as such. Why? Because you hold marriage in high honor, and God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. There's a positive directive here. Hold marriage in all of its beauty and glory and plan and design. Hold it in, in high esteem and high honor, but it's also followed by a negative warning. Take heed. Receive these words. Receive the word of God. And check your heart. Men and women, husbands and wives, is there any relationship in your life right now that is not being lived out through that means? Through interacting and relating to an individual of the opposite sex as a brother and sister in Christ within the church and externally as one who is created in the image of God and needs Jesus? Are you pursuing these relationships that God has opened up in your life in that way. So what is God's plan in marriage? I think there's a great opportunity anytime we preach expositionally through the word of God, if there is a culturally relevant topic for us to just pause a moment and linger in it. And certainly marriage is, is one of those, those topics for us to linger in. What is God's plan in marriage? We see this unfold in the earliest pages of Scripture. We see God establishing the institution and covenant of marriage. So we see that in Genesis chapter number 2. I'm going to read a somewhat lengthy passage, but again, I think for our day and our time, we need to hear God's word and his truth about marriage. So I pray that you would Receive these words and hear the word of the Lord this morning. Verse number 18 of Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature... That was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, 
took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last, this at last, excuse me, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Men, women, young people, this is God's plan. This is the covenant of marriage. Marriage is between one man and one woman, period. Without variation or any other design, marriage is between one man and one woman. And whether the world is looking on, approves of that definition or not, it is God's plan and it is his design. And the beauty about that is that God created marriage. And when you create something, you get to define what it is. And that's what God has done for us there in Genesis chapter number 2. So then the f- physical pleasure and intimacy are designed and planned to be experienced in every way with one condition that it is within the covenant of biblical marriage. God not only created man and woman with their own differences and unique, beautiful aspects, but God also created the institution and covenant of marriage. He created physical pleasure and intimacy, and he desires it for us, but within his plan, within his design, and at his perfect time. So friends, our author is reminding us of God's plan, God's ways, and God's timing, he's reminding us that that is always best. God's plan, God's ways, God's timing, God's design, it is always best. It will always be better than anything we could create or manipulate on our own. So friends, the reminder as we consider this admonition to hold marriage in high honor. Friends, young people, everybody here today, hear these words. Don't settle for the lie. Young man, young woman, that, that don't settle for the lie that you're missing out on something by waiting. Don't believe the lie that doing things God's way within his design and within his perfect time, that it is lesser in any way because that is a lie from Satan himself. There's a thief that has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus has come that we would have life and have it more abundantly. There is abundant life as we walk in obedience to God's word. No matter how long that journey may be, no matter whether the desires in our own wisdom and our own understanding are fulfilled or unfulfilled, as long as we walk 
by faith and obedience to God's word, there absolutely can and will be an immeasurable amount of joy and life in an abundant fashion. Friends, we're not missing out by saying no to the world. We're not missing out by saying yes to God's way and God's design and God's plan. Just as the author is reminding his readers of the role and the importance of marriage, we too need to recalibrate our mind and our heart to God's understanding of this topic. So married husband and wife don't believe the lie of that thief that has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Don't believe that that infatuation at work or this person online really just understands you or gets you better. Don't believe that lie. Run, flee, believe God's way is better. Hold your marriage in high honor, esteem it, pursue it, protect it, fight for it. It's interesting that the author admonishes his readers to be sure the marriage is held in high honor by whom? By all. He doesn't say, hold it in high honor if you're married. Hold marriage in high honor by all. Whether you're married now, whether you're too young to be married, not married, desire to be married, or whether you are content with the season you are in, our author challenges us all to hold marriage in high honor. This is for everyone. Why? Why does God care so much about marriage? Because it's a picture of the gospel. Marriage, this covenant between one man and one woman before the Lord, it is a picture of the gospel. Do you remember Ephesians chapter number five, verse number 20? I'm gonna read down through chapter five again to give us this context of marriage to make sure that we have the mind of the Lord and hear his absolute truth on this picture of the gospel through this covenant of marriage. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands... Love your wives, how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31, quoting from Genesis 2, Therefore a man 
shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And Paul says, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This mystery is profound, or is profound excuse me, concerning marriage. But Paul says in Ephesians 5 that it is pointing to Christ and his sacrificial love for the church. It's a picture of Jesus loving his bride so much that he gave. He gave of his life to redeem her and to sanctify her. This is the gospel. So as we are careful to guard and protect the gospel, to define it clearly and biblically, we must equally work by God's grace to define marriage clearly and biblically and to hold it in high honor as we are in this world but not of it. Why? Because it is a picture of the gospel. So biblical love should influence, first, our relationship within marriage. And this brings us to our second directive of this, this pair here. So point number two is biblical love should inform our relationship with money. Biblical love should inform our relationship with money. There really is something about the depravity of man, sin, struggle, failure, scandal. You read the headlines or you know of it personally in your own life. All of these things typically, most often, can be reduced down to these two areas of either physical pleasure, immor um, immorality, or a failure in money. And so our author is challenging us to think rightly and biblically about physical pleasure and about money. In the world, in the church, in our own homes, physical pleasure and money are two areas that our flesh and the devil oftentimes trips us up. So the time and attention that we're spending here this morning on these two topics is certainly warranted and needed in the day that we live in. That said, verses 5 and 6 align in this same structure as verse number 4. Verse 5, we have this implied verb of to be with the subject being your life or literally your lifestyle and the predicate adjective being in the Greek, aphilargios, which literally means not silver loving or not loving money. So in the same fashion as verse 4, the author gives us a second clause to deepen our understanding of this directive and to help us understand the severity of what is being said. We have our verb here again, to be. Our subject is our possessions or what we have. And then the predicate adjective is being content. It's contentment. So biblical love should inform our relationship with money. We're called to be content with what we have. Instead of loving money and placing our hope and identity in it, the author says, rather, we should be content 
in our possessions. But why? What's the common sense rationale that's offered here? Verse number four, if you remember, it was this sobering reality of God's imminent judgment on the immoral and the adulterous. Here, instead of a judgment, the author's rationale takes the form of a promise. It says in verse number five, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And it's here that the author paraphrases a few Old Testament references that point back to this paraphrase quote here, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We see this back in Genesis 28, verse number 15. Behold, I am with you, the Lord says, and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. We see this phrase as well in Joshua chapter number one, verse number five. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse number six. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then the author finishes this thought out with a clear proof text from Psalm 118, verse number six. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the why. This is why we can be content with what we have. This is why we should not have the love of money because we have this promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And the Lord is our, is our helper. And as such, we have nothing to fear. What can man do to us? This admonition reveals the object of our hope. What do I mean by that? If our hope is in money, and then it's gone, what do we have? We have fear that slips in due to the uncertainty of the circumstances. In contrast, if our hope is in God, and money is unexpectedly gone, we still have what? Jesus and Christ is enough, as we sang this morning. We still have Jesus. We still have that sure and steady anchor for our soul. And no man or no thing or no money or the lack thereof in our bank account can take away the promise that Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. And he won't leave us as is the promise of the Old Testament, until he completes that which he promised. He will always keep his covenant promises to his people. It reminds me of that phrase in that beautiful song that we recently sang by Sky Peterson. Kids, do you remember that one? I am not my own. We learned that as a church and Kids, you got to help us sing that. 
the words of, I think it was verse 2 or 3, start by this, and if he has redeemed me, I am not my own. Kids, can you help me here? The measure of my worth is what? In, you remember it? The measure of my worth is in his love alone. Do you remember that one? And if he has redeemed me, I am not my own. The measure of my worth is in his love alone. She goes on in that song, he declares my standing and he declares my state. So I will know myself by the name he gave. course goes on to say, I belong to the Lord. Oh, I am not my own. I belong to the Lord. I am not my own. I will honor him for this. I know I belong to the Lord. I am not my own. Incredible truths there are in that song. And although the author doesn't connect a warning to this passage here in Hebrews chapter number 13, Scripture is clear that a love affair with money is absolutely nothing to take lightly. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter number 6, verses 6 through 10. Read this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have even wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Wow. So then, biblical love should inform our relationship with money. Primarily through the love that has been shown in the gospel from the Father through his Son, Jesus. This is our hope. This is our identity. Chapter 12, the assembly of the firstborn, joint heirs, sons and daughters of the king, those enrolled in heaven with their names written in the Lamb's book of life. If he can meet our greatest need of salvation, he certainly can meet our day-to-day needs of food, shelter, and clothing. So based on these unfailing and abiding promises, friends, trust the Lord, and not money. Put your faith in the gospel and not in the possessions of this world that are fleeting and temporal. Biblical love should influence our relationship within marriage. Biblical love should inform our relationship with money. Our third and final point this morning is that biblical love should instruct our relationship with the elders. See this in verses seven through eight. So we're going to introduce this topic that actually runs all the way down through verse number 19. So this morning, we're just gonna cover verses seven and eight. And then over the next two weeks, uh, we're gonna work to unpack 
specifically this relationship of the church to leadership. So let's read verses 7 and 8 once again. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're called once again here in these opening verses of chapter 13 to remember. We're first called to remember those who cannot fellowship within biblical community, those that are in prison or experiencing hardships, they're providentially hindered, under difficult trial and persecution. Now we are called to remember whom? Your leaders, and specifically those who spoke to you the word of God. These would be the elders of local churches. And for us here at Liberty Hills Bible Church, that's Brother Andy, that's Brother Dave, and that is myself. By God's grace and in his time, maybe there will be others that the Lord will raise up and that we will affirm and ordain and train and establish as additional elders. But for now, there's, there's three of us. So as we work through this section, as challenging as it will be to preach and teach some truths from this section, our prayer is that we won't think of this passage in generic, broad terms, but rather we should work through this text with names and relationships in mind. Biblical love should instruct our relationship with Andy, Dave, and Eric. So the call then is a call to remember your elders. As you remember them, you are called first to remember what they spoke. Our prayer and our hope, our goal and our aim, our pursuit, the striving that we have within um, the service of the Lord in a role as an elder by God's grace is that when you remember us, you would recall us speaking nothing other than the word of God. Paul's challenge to Timothy in the closing remarks of his second letter was to what? Preach the word. We see that in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 of 2 Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Paul speaking to Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul's admonition to Timothy and his aim and focus 
and direction to preach the word and to have the word of God as the foundation for the ministry. It is the same truth for us as elders even today. The word of God is the only thing we have. It is our only hope. It is the only source of truth. And just as Jesus prayed to the Father in the high priestly prayer of John 17, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We preach Christ and we pray that is what is remembered. And friends, we welcome the Berean-minded Christian that if you were to ever hear from this pulpit or the ministry of Liberty Hills Bible Church ever hear a preaching or a teaching of another gospel, of another philosophy, another tenet of belief, we pray that you, biblically, would come to us. And by God's grace and for his glory, that would be cast away. There would be repentance of that wandering and that strain. And that we could be restored to the truth of God's word alone. Not only are we, are you, excuse me, to remember what they spoke, but you're also called to remember how they lived. Second half of verse Seven, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is a sobering reality for elders. And to personalize this, this is a sobering reality for Andy, Dave, and I. The Lord will never leave his people. And I'm thankful for that promise. But at the same time, that cannot be said of human leaders. And so as you are called to consider how we live, there's this sobering reality that this side of eternity, my testimony and my life and my walk with the Lord will be imperfect. I, we, elders, other leaders, some other um, preacher that you listen to online, that is not your hope. No man this side of eternity is worthy of your hope. And if your hope is placed in any man this side of eternity, you will be failed. We will fail you. And maybe we'll hurt you. And maybe we already have. And for that, it It truly does pain my heart to even think that that failure could be present and it could harm you in some way spiritually, emotionally, relationally. And I pray that God's grace, we would practice out Ephesians 4, that all of us under the headship of Christ, that we would be eager to maintain the unity, the spirit, and the bond of peace. And regardless of role or title, or influence in the ministry, that we would all seek to love each other well for the glory of God. Despite our imperfections, despite our failures, that God's grace would be ever-present. And it does pain my heart, despite these imperfections and failures, we pray that as you remember us 
and consider our way of life and imitate our faith, our prayer is that you will see a better shepherd. That you will see the better shepherd, the true head of this church, Jesus Christ. And as you remember us, consider us and imitate us, I pray that you will see us to be faithful. As 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5 outline. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, there he is, Jesus Christ, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. For the sake of time, uh, I won't read this passage, but jot down 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, verses 18 through 31. This speaks to the reality of what we preach. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We preach Christ and him crucified. So Jesus, verse number eight, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We speak to this as the immutability of God. It never changes. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. As Andy unfolded, the God that was worshipped by Abraham and Isaac there in Genesis 22 is the same God that we worship this morning, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is the same God, and we worship him. I pray that that will be true in your life. He will never fail. That is our hope this morning. Jesus never fails. So as we run, and as we do this thing that we call the Christian life, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Biblical love should influence our relationship within marriage. Verse four, biblical love should inform our relationship with money. Verses five and six, and biblical love should instruct our relationship with the elders in verses seven through eight. We're gonna continue to unpack this truth over the next couple of weeks, and I pray that you'll read ahead, that you'll pray over these scriptures and that you would desire to learn um, what God has for you, to deepen your understanding, your knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Every head bowed, every eyes closed. We'll have the men go ahead and come and prepare yourselves for communion.
But as the men come and we prepare for communion, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be mindful of a better love. What a better message than that as we come to fellowship within the body of Christ, remembering that our relationship with God has been restored through the love shown towards us through Jesus Christ. And because we have received reconciliation, because we have received comfort, because we have received love, that should impact and influence all relationships in our life. And namely right now, it's a relationship within the body of Christ. God, I pray that as we prepare our hearts and our minds, as we come and partake of your table, I pray that we would do it joyfully. I pray that our sin account with you would be clear. I pray that we would hold in high honor marriage. I pray that our relationship with, with money would be in its rightful place. We would place our hope and trust in you and you alone. Gotta pray our relationship with us as leaders that there would be um, no uh, known offense or, or issue that uh, has been unresolved. And God, we pray that for all the relationships here, that if there's strife or bitterness um, or, or sin, um, I pray that we would take this time to even make that right before we come to the Lord's table. So God, we, we thank you for this time and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.